Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. Jeff and I have always wanted to talk about mental health and I think something that we've been looking forward to for a long time is to discuss mental health, especially amongst the Asian community, which is why we are super excited today to be sitting down with Vianne Nguyen. She is a registered psychologist and the head of Impact from Shapes and Sounds. If you don't know already, Shapes and Sounds is the leading voice for Asian Australian mental health and well-being, and to provide a range of services, including providing an Asian Australian mental health practitioner list and mental health and well-being programs, as well as free mental health tips and resources. Vianne, it's so good to see you. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Isabella. Such a warm introduction. I feel very humbled. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) No, we are so excited. Like I said before, you know, I think mental health is something that is a big issue in the Asian Australian community and something that doesn't really get talked about as much as it should. But before we get into that, just really want to kind of know about you and your background. Tell us about yourself. We'd love to know about, you know, what, how you've come here, shapes and sounds and the role you play today. Sure. Well, work-wise, I started off, um, I did the Masters of Organisational Psychology and I started my career in management consulting at that time, I tried to do, you know, tried to do the thing, get admiration from my parents, get their approval, climb the corporate ladder, get stability. And it pretty much like very quickly didn't happen the way that I expected it would. <laughs> so yeah, I found myself, I, I feel like it was a short time frame, but I did find myself being really like unmotivated and down on myself when it came to work. So I took some time off, like a month. I was talking to heaps of people like mentors, peers, and telling them, you know, all about my woes and my problems. Like, I don't know what's really wrong with me, but I keep facing the same barriers at work. I keep getting feedback to be more confident and more assertive. And I feel like I'm doing all the things, but I'm not actually going anywhere. And so then one of my mentors, Christine, um, she kind of planted this seed that was like, what if it's not you that's the problem? but actually you could thrive in a different environment. (laughs) Um, So then I got really like offended. I was like, I don't know what you mean, Christine, because I've invested all this time into this pathway um, and I haven't actually thought about that before. (laughs) And, And, you know, having to think about what do I actually like and what am I passionate about? So then I started thinking and I actually made a vision board. I was just like, let's get down all the things that I know are close to my heart, So I put down, you know, women, girls, health, Asian Australian issues, um, mental health. And in that time as well, I was talking to a lot of people and that's where I met Asami and she was working on Shapes and Sounds at the time. It was a blog to talk about all of the issues that she's seen in the mental health space and specifically how Asian Australians seem to be falling through the cracks and really not having their needs met. So, yeah, we just... We started talking. I don't think we ever stopped. And we were like, well, what can we do to really kind of 
address this issue if there is nothing specific for Asian Australians, which, you know, really is a big diaspora in Australia. Um, And I've actually, I've never come across something that's specifically for this group either. So yeah, we just collaborated. And that's also when I kind of left the role that I was in, started looking at other things and spending a lot of time on shapes and sounds. So, and that's kind of where we've got to today, that Now it's an online platform really focusing on Asian Australians who want to do something for their mental health. As you mentioned, we've got resources for them. And we also want to focus on the other side of the equation. So providing support for Asian Australian practitioners who are serving the community as well. So yeah, that's where I find myself today. And I like to think that it comes back to my mentors and the vision board. So it manifested. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I love that. And, you know, I think often the best ideas do come out of like a gap in, you know, the market, so to speak, or a gap in, you know, what you don't see in your community. And it's fantastic to see how you've managed to get that idea and just hit the ground running and build the organization from the ground up. I mean, how long has it been now? Like, Mm. are you able to kind of speak on how you kind of grew shapes and sounds into what it is today? Well, Asami started it as a blog in October of 2019, and I came on in 2020. So it really, in the past year, we've been really working hard to offer different services. So you may have come across the Shapes and Sounds Club, which is kind of an Asian Australian mental health group. It's a space to come together. There are regular reflective prompts and then also an online discussion forum for people to share their reflections and you know, opportunities to talk and connect with other people. And that's kind of been the focus for the past year. So it kind of feels like it hasn't been that long, but also that it's been a lifetime. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love that. I think the chance, the opportunity to give people to talk about it makes such a difference because a lot of the time, a lot of people have these shared experiences, but if you give them the opportunity to actually connect, I think it can actually make so much of a difference. And that's sort of one of the key ideas of this podcast and why I wanted to speak to you. It's just because it's, it's no secret that mental health is often stigmatized in a lot of Asian communities. Like mental illness can sometimes be viewed as a phase or a source of shame at worst. So in your opinion, like, why do you think that is? Hmm. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of people from Asian families will have that similar experience. I actually think that at the core of it, there are some really common themes like intergenerational trauma. That's a really common experience for people. And of course, if we've got an immigrant background, potentially a lot of people um, have parents who have really been focused on survival and just getting those basic needs met before you can think about, you know, well-being and happiness at that level. So I think that that theme still rings true for a lot of families But in terms of the stigmatized nature of mental health, I think there's something to be said around the East and West mentality. Like when I take a step back and think about it, my background is Vietnamese. And I think that there is a lot of overlap between wellness and spirituality and community. So, you know, with my grandparents and my parents, when they're thinking about you know, how am I doing? Am I feeling well? I think a lot of the times they look at the bigger picture, like, is everyone in my family doing well? Am I getting support from my ancestors? Like, I kind of really picture that 
opening scene in Mulan when her dad is praying to the ancestors. It's kind of like that, like how connected are you? Are they behind you? (laughs) And then, you know, the setting that we're in at the moment, this kind of Western idea that mental health and well-being is this individual responsibility. It's all about your feelings and how on top of them, how do you regulate and manage your emotions, that kind of thing. I think there's a bit of a clash between those two ideas. And so it could be that, yeah, we're just thinking about different things when it comes to mental health. So yeah, I kind of think maybe you can blend the two. And when we talk about well-being, think about that more collective picture and like how are my parents at the moment what's the bigger picture like and you can start kind of on that common ground to talk about it otherwise if you come from that really individualistic angle and talk about you know I'm feeling unwell uh, I'm not happy at the moment your parents might have that mindset of you know collective health and they might you know think something along the lines of you know look around you like you've got food you've got shelter like everything's fine so I don't know what you mean so, yeah, I think there might be a little bit of a mismatch as well. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a super interesting idea because I think with so many things, when you're in that first generation immigrant phase of your life, well, not even phase of your life, just like in general, you are a first generation Asian Australian, you really do have that. When we talk about this, maybe even too much, you experience these two parts of the world, right? At home, it is very much the culture of where your parents come from. But when you step outside into the world, you're met with this different value system. And I think when it comes to something that's as important as mental health, if you seek sort of advice or you seek thought leadership from both sides, I feel, yeah, as you were saying, there's this like clash and you almost feel like, I don't know what the right avenue to work this out is. Is that sort of like what you mean? I think so, yeah. I think a lot of people talk about not having the right language to talk to their parents about mental health. And I think that a lot of times we still want the same things. You know, we want to feel good. Our parents want to feel good and want us to feel good. But again, it's like approaching it from different perspectives. And yeah, that's where the clash is. But the goal is pretty similar at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. This one big idea that I had a chat with someone last week about was the idea of face. Uh, I feel like in a lot of Asian cultures, face is really important. Like I think as a, yeah, as a kid, like when I would go to different people's houses, it was always like, oh, make sure you say hi to everyone, address them by the right title. You know, um, you're a representation of our family. Like you got, we got to say face, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that face notion isn't just a necessary, like, oh, my, my kid is rude. Like, I don't want that. It's almost like your child is a reflection of your competency as a parent. And I feel like for some parents, they don't want to see their child in this like state that's unhappy. It's not, they're not in a good place. And it almost like they might see it as a reflection of themselves and the way that they've brought them up. Yeah. Like, have you seen that with some of the people that you've encountered with through Shapes and Sounds? Yeah, I would say it's a common experience. But yeah, even for me, I think early on in my, you know, journey, like seeking help and things like that. I think the initial question that my parents would always say is like, what will people say about that? Mm. (laughs) So early on, yeah, when I initially told them, like, I'm going to go talk to a counsellor or a psychologist, that was their first question. What are people going to say? And then after that, they were saying, what are you saying about my parenting? (laughs) So immediately, like, very defensive, very offended. 
um, by that approach. So I think it is what you described, like that concept of face. And I think it comes back to kind of those Confucian beliefs that still kind of play out in a lot of like Eastern Asian cultures that, you know, the family is one unit. So whatever you do, it kind of represents your whole family. So that kind of idea is still playing out. And I think when it comes to our generation, it seems like it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, why would my mental health experience impact like what people say about you? Like that's kind of confusing if you put it together. Yeah. And just on that, like how did you approach talking to your parents about mental health and, you know, doing something like seeing a counsellor and psychologist? Because that leads me to my next question of, you know, how we can meaningfully break down these stigmas. And I think sometimes that stigma just comes down to your parents, right? And I just can't imagine like how difficult that conversation would be. But if you're happy to, I'd love to kind of hear about how you managed to navigate through that or if it's something mm-hmm. you're still navigating through. Yeah, well, I think... You know, I've invested a lot of time into this area, like thinking and doing things around mental health. And for my personal experience, I think when I initially brought it up with my parents, they were really against it. And, you know, that was probably my form of rebelling. It's not that interesting, like not staying out all night. (laughs) But I was like, I'm going to see a psychologist, even if you don't want me to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do something for myself. Yeah. So I just went ahead with it anyway. You know, another thing was at that time I was in uni, it was free because you're, you know, like part of the student services. So I think that's a pretty compelling angle. Like it doesn't cost anything. I just went through with it. And after my first session, I remember coming back and telling them like, oh yeah, I saw the psychologist. And they were just looking at me like, oh, you know, you look, you look the same. You look like (laughs) You look the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like nothing... Nothing's changed really. If anything, I feel kind of better. (laughs) And so they've just never been through that before. So by breaking down whatever ideas that they had about what therapy means, they actually just got like a little bit more curious about it. So, you know, my mum booked her own psychologist appointment after that. Oh my God, wow. Yeah. So I think that was one of my happiest moments that like maybe I helped her open up the door for something as well. I didn't expect that that would be her out, you know, what she did next. So that was, you know, what happened at that time. I think, of course, we're still working on things, still figuring out like what are our triggers, how to work better together. But yeah, your question around how to break down the stigma I've been thinking like similar to what we were talking about before, I think our parents, if I just kind of generalize, you know, our parents and us, I think that they have the same ideas or goals and it's around, you know, prosperity. I just want you to be successful, that type of thing. And potentially for that generation, prosperity has a lot to do with wealth and stability. Whereas in this generation, it's a little bit more about, you know, fulfillment and emotional needs. So Again, it's like we want the same thing, but we're taught like we're in different chapters of the book. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I mean, do yeah. you think like that kind of almost plays into like Maslow's like hierarchy of needs, right? Like, mm. obviously, I think especially for our Vietnamese backgrounds, respectively, they had to survive, endure through war, and to them, genuinely, it was just survival and about getting their feet on the ground, making money. That probably was the thing that they were buying for the most whereas obviously we're at that stage where you know we have those basic needs fulfilled and it is that emotional fulfillment that we'd seek so yeah I mean do you think Maslow's hierarchy is something that actually plays into this or is it 
a product or mm. something else. I think that definitely is a part of it, you know, and that relates a lot to trauma therapy as well or trauma-informed therapy that if you've got a secure base, you will feel safe to go out and explore the world a little bit more. But for a lot of people that have been through war or fleeing the country or, you know, all those kinds of traumas that possibly they haven't really processed that trauma or their, you know, nervous system isn't really regulated in that they can calm themselves down when they're stressed and so then it comes out as like hypervigilance and always being worried about things. And one example came to mind for me. So my mom lives in an apartment and out of her front door, she puts these, she lives alone, but she's got like giant male boots. I don't really know where she got them from, <laughs> but she's just got huge boots at the front of her door to suggest like, oh, you know, someone else lives in this house as well. So I think that comes from this place of like, yeah, being afraid of for physical safety as well. Just like quick side note about the boots. They actually got stolen. So I think her plan fell through. It didn't work. <laughs> so now there's just like really small size five sandals at the door, <laughs> but no one has stolen those. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good to hear the experience of telling your parents that you started therapy was really good. So I was in a similar situation. I was free for work, from work to do therapy. And I've always had this long-standing, I guess, misconception around what therapy meant as for an individual. I think like my parents have always told me, you can always overcome something and you'll be stronger from it. You can just, anything bad that happens, sweep it under the carpet, look forward, that sort of thing. And, you know, in many ways, I'm grateful for that lesson because it gives me it sort of drives a lot of my ambition. It gives me motivation to sort of not let things pull me down super easily. But then I got to this point went last year, I was like, I feel like I, I feel like I have a lot of shit that I need to talk through. You know, it was sort of, I didn't feel it bubbling up to the surface by any means. I didn't feel like it was influencing me, but the, the scene that always plays out in my head is, have you seen that um, episode of the Simpsons where Flanders explodes? Um, so he's like a, a child who's like a naughty child and then basically like he got spanked for like an entire year and that made him a good kid but essentially what was happening was everything was bubbling up under the surface and then he exploded and he went, in, and went insane and I'm always scared that that's going to happen I don't know if it will but I've, I've always had this like underlying fear that it's going to happen and you know I went to I went to therapy you know shout out to my therapist Tyson I don't know if he's listening to this but it was great it was really, really good. I think the most eye-opening thing around the benefit of therapy, especially I think for, this is a, a completely a generalization, but I feel like for a lot of men, we don't open up as much. It's not something to necessarily go out with a bunch of your friends and just talk about your feelings for a few hours as much as I would love to do that now. Uh, but it's sort of, I don't, yeah, I don't really have these opportunities to, to talk about myself as much. And he basically just said, when was the last time you talked about yourself for an hour? And I was like, I don't know, maybe never. And so I'm at this place where I see him every two months is how it goes at the moment. And I really enjoy our sessions and I think they've really helped me a lot, but I am still sort of riding that line around like, when do I tell my parents? Like, what are they, what are they gonna think? No, 100% will, because I think it's slowly, for me, one of the joys of my life is shattering their stereotypes about people. I think, you know, for myself, it was 
appearance wise, like I have quite a few tattoos and I've always wanted to like tattoos aren't necessarily just for bad people. You know, it's just, it's just uh, something that, you know, helps me express who I am and you know, all the things I do in my life, et cetera, et cetera. They sort of, at first they're like, oh, like, why would you do this? Why would you do this? But then eventually they sort of go like, oh, he's still okay. He's still like tracking along. So I do want this to be the next frontier. I haven't worked out how I'm going to do it yet, but I'm very, I'm very happy to hear that it went well for you. Did it sort of take them a while to come around or was it like the first instance? They're like, yeah, 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 sick, yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, I think for me, they were so against it at the beginning that after my first session and seeing that I came back, you know, still a human, still functioning, (laughs) that they were like, oh, actually like all of these ideas that I had, I'm not even sure what they were thinking. Maybe that, yeah, it could be along those lines of saving face and that if you go, like it's going to be really bad for us. But of course, you know, nothing really impacted them. So it might've just been after the first session that they started to like think differently. But I also really love hearing your experience and that thought process. Cause I think that is really important. Like, especially for Asian men, not really having a go-to outlet to talk about feelings or even knowing how to do it. I was going to say I'm guilty. I'm actually more, I'm proud <laughs> that a couple times I've sat down with my male Asian friends and I've spoken about, well, I'm just going to be really upfront. I was like to them, you are not very good at providing emotional support. I'm coming to you as a friend. And I was like, let me use this whiteboard and just, I'm going to draw a framework on how to provide emotional support in a conversation. Like drew a graph, I made sentence starters. And I was like, this is it. It's simple. Here it is. And yeah, I got really good feedback from that one impromptu lesson that I gave. (laughs) But it also made me realize that for these people, my friends, you know, Asian males, they just haven't been in that situation before. Like they've not been able to open up. And I think that that's really a missed opportunity and something that deserves more airtime and yeah, just a lot more attention as well. Yeah, absolutely. Your your consulting background is definitely coming up to the surface <laughs> with your with your frameworks and all that sort of stuff. But but we love that. I guess um you know for our listeners out there who have thought about you know going to therapy or a little scared or a little worried, like what are some misconceptions or some common ones around therapy that you could share with them? Oh, um, by listeners, I think you also mean me, Jeff. I think therapy <laughs> is something I'm like, I'm, I'm, I really want to do this year actually. Mm. But I think I was telling you, Jeff, I feel like I anticipate that my first session of therapy will just be me crying. And I am just like deeply afraid of that. Oh, that was me as well. You know, like, don't, don't worry. I, I, the other thing was uh, I didn't really talk that much in my first session because I didn't know, as you were saying, V, like how to do it. And then by the end, I like, cried for the first time in eight years. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it was crazy. And now I cry all the time. It's great. Aww, yeah. <laughs> I think it will be good, Isabella. It will be good. But obviously when you're ready. No, I'm looking forward to it. Well, actually, yeah, on that point, I think that's a really big one. I think we spoke about that in one of the Shapes and Sounds, maybe like videos or something, but there's a really big common belief or misconception, I guess, about the first session of therapy. So I've heard it so many times, like clients, they come in and they're like, oh, I almost cancelled today or I had nightmares last night, just all this anxiety around the first session. And I think, as you mentioned, it's fear about not being like in control or like letting loose of your feelings and feeling very chaotic. 
I think that it's good to know if you find the right match with your psychologist, like you can kind of tell early on as well that if you're vibing, if you feel safe, then they'll be able to hold space for you. And it's okay to kind of like let loose of your feelings because it's not going to be like that forever. Part of the psychologist's job is to help you hold the emotions and then give you tools or strategies to kind of regulate and self-soothe. And, you know, you can experiment in that period as well of what actually makes you feel grounded again. But, yeah, so that's the first one that, like, it it really is going to be okay, the first session. (laughs) And another one, another misconception that I hear a lot is that the psychologist has the answers. You know, I hear from a lot of clients that people in their life are like, oh, you should talk to your psychologist about this or ask your psychologist and that kind of thing. And really the role of a therapist is to be a facilitator. So they actually are not going to give you any answers. They will kind of guide you along the way because I think at the end of the day, everyone knows themselves the best and you'll know the strategies or the, I guess, treatment, whatever you need, like you have the answers and the psychologist will help you get there. So yeah, the expectation that you'll come in and all your problems will be solved in a few sessions, it's probably inaccurate. Yeah, that was probably one of the biggest tips I got was you can't expect it to be life-changing because you go in with that expectation, then it's very likely you'll just be disappointed. But yeah, I think that was what was so great about it. It wasn't even that, I don't think I got any advice in that whole hour. It was just, he knew the right questions to ask. And then you just kind of sit there and you're like, oh, oh, right. And then as you say it, you're like, oh, right, okay. And then it's sort of, you build into this snowball of all your experiences start to connect and you, you draw dots that were there, but maybe they weren't necessarily conscious. They were all subconscious. And then it just like comes all bubbling up. But it's a talent in a lot of ways. Honestly, it was just, I've just never been in, in that experience before because I guess in the past, if people ask me questions, I'm usually a blanket. Yeah, it's all cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think something about therapy as well, I think often, especially in like Asian communities, the rhetoric is always like, oh, you know, you go to therapy, you seek therapy whenever you're undergoing a crisis or something really bad happens. And I think there's so much to be said about normalizing therapy because everyone has issues and it's just a way to kind of, it's just like physical well-being, right? You exercise to keep healthy. I feel like therapy is just a way to kind of exercise that mental wellness and that aspect of your life. Yes. Oh, perfect, perfect example. Yeah, I definitely think the same thing. Like, you know, a lot of people, they for physical health, like going to the gym or getting exercise, you often don't leave it until crisis, like quote, unquote, <laughs> until you do something about your physical health. But for some reason, the same lens isn't really applied for mental health. Like you might actually seek help when you're feeling like, okay, now I'm really not dealing very well. But it's perfectly normal to see a psychologist when you are feeling fine as well, because you can do, you know, coaching and focus on positive psychology to focus on where you want to be as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. I mean, on that, like, do you still seek therapy, even though you are a psychologist? Is that something? And how does it feel being a psychologist mm. and like having been on the other side as well? Like, is there, mm. is that dynamic impacted by your own lived experiences or is it easy for you to kind of remove yourself from that? Oh, I think it does make sense. Whenever I talk to a therapist, I'm probably like overanalyzing everything. Like, what are they saying now? Like, what are they, 
what tools are they using at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if you've seen this meme, but you know the meme of like the four different brains and it's like more... Yeah, like the, the, the universe brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it starts with like, you know, seeing a therapist and it's like seeing my therapist's therapist <laughs> and then it just keeps going until you reach like enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. So I've forgotten your question. <laughs> no, I just wanted to know, like, yeah, I mean, do you seek therapy and is it something mm. that you still find, like, as fulfilling? And even though you are, like, a psychologist, like, mm-hmm. do you often apply the tools you give to people on yourself or do you still feel mm. like you need to have that external person to give yeah. you Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think that, you know, everyone could do with support regardless of what your job is. So for me personally... I have a coach that I think I've been working with her for like six years now, but it started off as mentoring and then she moved into coaching. And so our relationship kind of moved into a coaching one as well. But she's someone that I see regularly and she takes on a little bit more of a spiritual lens. So we kind of talk through issues and there's a slightly different angle on it. But yeah, I think it's really worthwhile as well. And actually, while I'm here, I might add another misconception, something mm, from, for from earlier. But I noticed a lot of clients come to me and they're kind of embarrassed to share, or they seem embarrassed to share their perspective on issues. Like they might be quite spiritual themselves. Maybe they use crystals. Maybe they do a lot of different types of meditation. And they'll say like, oh, but you know, you're a lady of science, so I don't want to go into it too much. But actually, I think it would be pretty wrong of me to close off, you know, an entire area of thinking. And I think a lot of the times, like spiritual concepts and psychology concepts, it is talking about similar things, but using different language, like even manifestation. I think there are a lot of principles behind it, like, you know, paying attention to things, setting an attention. So there's a lot of I guess, evidence or science behind it as well. Mm. Um, But I think we're just using different words to describe things. So, yeah, I think that's another one that you don't need to feel like, oh, it's psychology. I'm going to get judged if I, you know, share what the way that I've been thinking about things as well. Mm. Yeah. I love this idea of um, not having to be in crisis mode to have to use therapy. I think that is that is one big thing that I've realized is more close friends around me have started to to talk about it more commonly. And it's sort of this, not this, you don't have this knee jerk reaction when someone says, oh, I'm going to therapy now. You don't instantly go like, oh, what's wrong? Um, how can I help? That sort of thing. It's just like a maintenance thing, as you were saying, like the exercise example, or just to make sure things are okay. They're sort of where you want them to be. I love this idea. And I think the more we can talk about it within this day-to-day context the more we can normalize it in in conversations i think people are more likely to i guess look at their mental health as something that's like okay i can talk about this i can seek someone out to talk about it and it doesn't have to be when i'm at my absolute lowest it could be literally whenever i think this is such a good message to have thanks jeff and actually what you were saying before around the learned behavior of like sweeping things under the rug or saying that everything's okay. I think there's a big, you know, cultural element on that as well. And it's actually something that we spoke about in the essential guide to Asian Australian mental health. It's a resource on the shapes and sounds website, but stoicism was one of the three 
you know, components that is so common. And it really is that idea of just keep going, push along, everything's going to be fine if you just keep moving forward. So I think, yeah, there's so many cultural nuances behind our like go-to ways of thinking as well. And maybe therapy or different mediums, just like thinking and talking about your mental health, your well-being, how you're feeling, it can start to, as you were saying, like unlock those feelings or just like a different way of looking at yourself. Mm. I think it's one of those things where obviously in the Asian Australian community, there are very specific things that are shared in our community. And I think because of that, there is a need for specifically Asian Australian mental health practitioners. Do you find that, you know, there has been a way towards an increased demand for Asian Australian mental health practitioners. Like I know for one that if I do seek therapy, no, when I do seek therapy, um, <laughs> I'd be thinking to have like an Asian Australian woman preferably just because mm-hmm. of that shared lived experience. And it's interesting when I speak to my friends about therapy, they often find that they have to shop around and often enough, I guess not surprisingly, they land on people who do have those shared and same lived cultural experiences. But I'm just wondering from your perspective, like, is this something that you've seen a trend towards? Like, is there more demand for these kinds of practitioners? And I guess more generally, like, you know, conversely, is it possible? And and I know for you, Jeff, you don't have specifically, you know, an Asian Australian therapist. Do you find that that's still tenable? That's a very like bolded question, but yeah, keen to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, You know, it would have been easier if Tyson was Asian. Because I guess I wouldn't have to explain the cultural nuances behind why I felt the way I did. You could just explain it as the situation was and they would probably understand because as you were saying as well, there is that shared experience. They understand all the cultural nuances that sit behind that. I think, you know, if I'm switch at some point, I think at the moment I'm quite happy, but if I do switch, I, I think I would also look for someone who was Asian just so... For lack of a better word, it's just easier. They just get it. Yeah, they just get it. What about you, V? Like, are you seeing demand for these practitioners? Definitely. (laughs) So what you mentioned before, the Asian Australian Mental Health Practitioner List is our most widely used resource at Shapes and Sounds. And we're just finding that there is definitely more demand than supply. So we're just kind of going out there like, okay, all of the Asian Australian practitioners, we'd love to have you. (laughs) But yeah, it's definitely the case that I think through having these conversations, people are starting to, yeah, maybe consider that idea of, yeah, maybe I should talk to someone of a similar background. And I'm just thinking about the first psychologist that I worked with, my friend recommended her to me. So my friend is Asian and she was like, Uh, Yeah, the therapist, her background is Irish, but she's got that whole migrant experience and, you know, from a conservative family migrating to England and she knows about that whole thing. So she's she's one of the good ones. (laughs) And so, yeah, I went to her and that was the thing that I checked. I was like, is she going to get it? Is she going to understand those cultural nuances? Luckily, I was able to talk to someone and kind of learn about her experiences but for other people maybe it is pretty easy to look at a list and if you already know that you've got a similar cultural background then it's kind of just a little bit easier and I do have a fair few clients of Vietnamese background and I find that when we work together it is really easy to just like skip over things you know like they might complain like oh my gosh my mum has been cooking like seven days a week I'm just sick of it now (laughs) 
And I'm like, I get it. It's a bit rich. <laughs> I get it. It gets ngang. <laughs> so then they don't need to explain what that is. Or... <laughs> yeah. 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 Amazing. And, you know, I, I think practically as well, obviously with the onset of COVID and the pandemic, the demand for therapy and I think for mental health practitioners is obviously, I, I don't want to say never been higher, but there's definitely an increased demand that definitely outstrips supply. Um, do you have any kind of like tips or recommendations for people who are seeking therapy but may have to wait a little bit longer to get that access? Are there particular resources that, you know, you would redirect people to, whether that's shapes and sounds or whether that's other platforms or other ways to kind of cope, so to speak? Hmm. Well, I'm going to go through the biased recommendation first. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I mentioned earlier, the Shapes and Sounds Club, it kind of is that, you know, it's not therapy. It's a space to talk about the things that are on your mind, things that have to do with your mental health and your cultural identity and kind of talk with other people who are going through the same things at the same time. And the feedback is, you know, connecting with others. That always seems to be like the number one you know, benefit or thing that they're seeking. So there is something that Shapes and Sounds offers that you can find, you know, people like you, they get it. You don't need to explain the nuances. But we're also really supportive of um, what we call like creative mediums to work through your mental health issues or whatever's on your mind. And it doesn't necessarily mean like you have to paint your way out of your feelings, but it could be that Maybe you do use music, you know, animals, art, or even it could just be like being around people that you feel safe with. Like there are indirect ways to support your mental health as well. If you are, you know, not yet seeking therapy and that's something that you want. But yeah, there are definitely gentle ways to take care of yourself and build that like self-awareness muscle before you get because once you get into therapy, and maybe Jeff, you can speak to that as well, but there's just a lot of introspection, mm. a lot of answering questions, a lot of thinking about yourself, lots of that involved. Yeah, 100%. Sometimes I wish I wasn't so self, like, I'm not even saying I'm super self-aware, but I wish I was less self-aware because you can just not have all these, like, realizations. You're like, oh. It's like, too late. Like, You're already like, there. I know, and yeah. I know this about myself, and I'm like, oh. It's good. It's good that you know, but sometimes ignorance is bliss. But obviously, no. maybe as a maybe as a long term strategy, it's not the most healthy thing. Uh, but uh, for me, I, I'd much I always much rather know things than not know them. I think, for an example, I don't like surprises. Like I wanna, <laughs> I wanna know what it is, and this is why. Like I could never watch. I, I hate horror movies. Just like the shock of it. Just I, I'm not about it. Sometimes I'll even like read the synopsis. Or like read the plot on Wikipedia before I watch it. Uh, so I know I know when the jump scares come. Oh good. You know a good one is if you if you wanna watch it but you're too afraid, you can just turn the volume off. That's true. The, the music is half of it, because they do that like <laughs> gradual build. Oh, I can't I can't stand it. I can't stand it. But uh, I guess like on this note about shapes and sounds, um, what does the future look like? What do you guys have planned that you can you can share with us? Yeah, well, you know, it hasn't been a super long time, but we definitely want to continue being that, you know, leading space and hub for Asian Australian individuals who want to do something, practitioners as well. So we're actually growing the team slowly. There will be more people who can help with, you know, providing support 
for you know members of the community and we're really this year focusing on what can we offer practitioners so we're beginning with you know peer support for asian australian mental health practitioners as again you know a space to talk about issues that you have specifically as someone of that cultural background and maybe working with the same people in that community so yeah we're really focusing on just serving both sides of that equation um, and getting in touch with more aligned partners like yourself <laughs> and just continuing to learn more about what the needs are and seeing how we're placed to help. Yeah. Amazing. Actually, on that note, I feel like often the conversations always centered on the people who receive therapy. How do therapists and psychologists kind of cope? I'm just quite curious to, like, to know like how you kind of preserve that mental space for yourself as a psychologist you know from like you know your clients trauma or issues and kind of that baggage is it easy to remove yourself from that or does that take time to kind of learn well yeah it probably is the most essential there are so many essential skills but one of the most essential skills is that boundary setting and it's something we call supervision which could be like from your supervisor, but it also could be from peers. And I think that really is essential. So talking it out with someone else, if it's with your supervisor, of course, you can get guidance from a more expert or experienced practitioner on how to understand like where your boundaries are and how to understand, I guess, when you're feeling a little bit, I guess, a bit anxious or not feeling balanced that could be one way to kind of regulate. And then I think in my experience, I've found peer supervision just really valuable as well. Like hearing from people that I studied with or they've gone through a slightly different pathway, but just getting that diversity on how other people are coping because it is is a very common issue. So yeah, I think a lot of the answer is again, social connection. <laughs> Amazing. And I do have a final question. Do you find yourself psychoanalyzing people, like these people you meet on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> just like with the skills that you have? Like oh. is it something that you find that you just do mm. indirectly or like I'm just quite curious as to yeah. and your how you like navigate life as a psychologist? <laughs> you know what? I think for me, this is me personally, um, I think I see myself as off-duty. <laughs> if I'm talking to friends or just meeting people. So my brain is kind of idle. (laughs) But if I do meet a particularly interesting character, maybe then it's like, hmm, like getting curious. (laughs) What was your childhood like? Uh, Yes, that is a a backup question, like always locked and loaded. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much, V. This has genuinely been such an enlightening conversation. And I'm actually going to go on the Asian Australian Mental Health Practitioners list right now. And actually, you know what? Book myself an appointment because I think therapy is something I've been deeply afraid of, but I'm also really excited to delve on. And this conversation has been so inspiring. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Um, I'm sure our listeners will have taken a lot of stock from this as well. And we'll definitely provide a list of resources as well um, for them to drag themselves to um but again thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure to have you oh thanks guys thanks for holding space for me today it's been such a pleasure chatting through this and I really love your kind of openness to talk about these things too I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that will feel also inspired by your actions so thank you (laughs) thank you thanks so much Kate
Um, again, we're going to link all those resources um, so that everyone can access them and uh, we'll share all the links for Shapes and Sounds because they're doing some amazing work. But uh, thanks again for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed the episode, give us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, we'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.